All right, we are going to give a quick review. If you're just joining us, you have missed the first two years of Christ's three and a half years of ministry. The Lord Jesus Christ, his public ministry here upon planet Earth, lasted approximately three and a half years. Well, you have missed the first two of his three and a half years of ministry. The three years of his public ministry are rather neatly divided into three periods. Now, in the front of your books, and those of you that have the old books, this is likewise true, you will find the outline for our whole Life of Christ series. It's called uh, Life of Christ General Outline. His three and a half years of ministry were divided um, basically into three sections, which is easy for us to think of. His first year was his year of obscurity. You see that down under section four, where it says the public ministry of Christ. His first year was a year of relative obscurity. Not many people heard about him or knew about him. His second year is becoming more and more popular with the multitudes because of all the healings and miracles he was performing. So the second year we call his year of open popularity. And then basically his third year was when there was a growing opposition to him from primarily whom? The religious rulers who did not like his popularity with the crowds. Basically, they were very jealous of him. But uh, you have missed, so you can see what you've missed. You've missed the first part, the preface for the life of Christ. You missed the pre-incarnation of Christ. We talked about Jesus Christ before he became man, before he was um, incarnated and took on the likeness of human flesh at the time of his birth from Mary's womb. You missed all that. You missed the preparation years of Christ, his birth, his boyhood, his, the, Baptist, the uh, baptism, the temptation. Um, you also missed our lessons on why we are studying Christ's life in the first place. Why are we going to be spending some eight or nine years, maybe ten at the rate I go, studying the life of Christ? But I just tell you real quickly, there's no better life we could be studying than the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You also missed how we are studying his life. And if nobody told you this, let me just um, tell you and remind the rest of us, we are rather unique in what we're doing because we are studying the Lord Jesus's life chronologically, going through all four gospel accounts step by step, which is rather unique. I don't know of another Bible study that has done this. Maybe they didn't want to spend that much time. But usually if you go to a Bible study, they'll be studying, if they're going to be studying one of the Gospels about Christ, they'll be studying maybe the whole book of Matthew, or they'll study the whole book of Mark, or Luke, or John. But not all four of them together at the same time. But we are doing that, and we are using a harmony of the Gospels, it's called. Some people say, what does that mean? All it is is these scholarly men have taken the four Gospels and to the best of their ability and knowledge, they have put them in chronological order so that we can see what Christ did first and then what he did next and then the next step and da-da-da-da-da. And when we do this, we find out a lot of amazing things that we would miss otherwise if we just went through the book of Matthew, for example, which is not necessarily chronological. Or John, who skips a lot of stuff. So we're, we're, um, we're unique in that sense. And actually, I thought about it, you know, not only are we covering the four Gospels, but we're covering a lot of Scripture because it seems like no matter what we do, we have to flip back to some book in the Old Testament or we go to some epistle in the New Testament or maybe we talk about some prophecy in the book of Revelation. 
So as we're doing this, don't feel like, oh, we're not learning the whole Bible. We're just studying Christ's life. We're, we're getting the whole thing. Sooner or later, we touch on all subjects. So you, but you, you missed um, why we're studying the Lord's life and how we're studying it, but I just gave you a quick review on that. Then you also missed the Lord's genealogical records, which are, were found in Matthew and Luke records, you know, his ancestral records, which demonstrate that he was absolutely, positively, definitively a messianic candidate because he came just as the scripture had predicted. He was the true savior. He was the true Messiah, the true Christ who would come through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, from the tribe of Judah, they would come down through the line of King David, and he did, both through his mother, his bloodline, and his stepfather, Joseph, the royal throne line. Amazing. Just absolutely amazing. You missed that. You also missed our four lessons on um, the Christmas story. We have a little mini album, The Lamb is Born. You missed the announce, the angelic announcements to the Lord's mother, and and father to uh, Mary and his stepfather Joseph. You miss the angelic announcements to Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents. You miss uh, his birth, the Lord's birth, and the story of the shepherds out tending the sheep in the uh, field around Bethlehem. You miss the account of the Magi coming to offer their gifts of frankincense, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You miss the uh, massacre of the innocents of Bethlehem by King Herod. Etc. So you miss the whole Christmas story. You miss studying with us about his boyhood years, which we called his silent years, because not is not a lot is known about the Lord's boyhood. But what little could be known, we talked about, and actually after you know we accumulated quite a bit of information um, information about his childhood growing up in Nazareth. We also looked at his his trip to Jerusalem when he was 12 years old. And then you missed our lessons regarding the ministry of Christ's forerunner, who was John the Baptist, such a bold, brazen, wonderful man. And you missed the account of the Lord's baptism. Why was the Lord baptized? He didn't need to be baptized for the repentance of sins, did he? We talked about that. We talked about his 40 days and 40 nights uh, spent in the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan and how he defeated Satan with just the power of the spoken word. And then you miss the calling of his first six disciples who were, this is a refresher for me too because I don't have all this written down. I just have a little outline up here. Let's see, who were they? Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Nathaniel. Very good, very good. Then you also missed his first miracle, which was changing water into wine, which was a creative miracle. And where did he perform that miracle? In Cana at a wedding. You missed the first of two temple cleansings. A lot of people do not know that the Lord cleansed the temple on two occasions. They just think he went in on one occasion. But he didn't. He went in and cleansed it at the beginning of his ministry and again at the end of his ministry. Actually, on Monday of the Passion Week, he will clean the temple again, but we won't get there for about five or six years. (laughs) Then you miss 
his nighttime, very, very critical talk with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And that was if, you know, if you, if you get any tape on anything that you miss, I would recommend that you pick up that tape. Um, a nighttime talk with Nicodemus, I think, is the name of the tape. But that was such a critical lesson on being born again from John chapter 3. Then you also missed his well side talk at the side of Jacob's well with a Samaritan woman who had had six men in her life before she met, met the seventh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect man, and became a believer in him and also the first evangelist. The first evangelist was a woman <laughs> because she couldn't wait. She left her water pot, couldn't wait to run back to her village of Sychar where she had been ostracized uh, and just share with everybody there that she had met Jesus and they all came out to meet him as well. You also missed his hometown's rejection of him for the first time. By, what was his hometown? Where did he grow up? Not where he was born, but where did he grow up? In Nazareth. That was the time when they tried to push him off the cliff and kill him. Did you know he was rejected twice in Nazareth? That's actually where we ended up in May, before we broke for summer. They rejected him the second time. He is the God of the second chance. He did give his hometown citizens another chance, but they rejected him again the second time. You um, also missed how he dealt with the fanatical rules and regulations of the Jews regarding the Sabbath. Remember how crazy that they just carried things to extreme so that a woman wasn't even allowed to look in a mirror because she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it. And that would be considered work because she'd be reaping or harvesting or whatever they called it. I mean, just just crazy rules that they had regarding the Sabbath. And you missed how he tried to reason with them very logically and very biblically about how wrong they were in so many of their ideas and their traditions and how they had twisted God's original intention for the day of rest. You also, this is more bad news new ladies. You also miss the Lord's marvelous teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, which we spent an entire year studying. Three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And that's the topic of our Life of Christ 2 volume, which we also have in this new format. If you missed it, you can pick that book up, which I highly recommend because um, really no study I think I've ever had personally other than maybe the book of Daniel has affected me so much as the study on the on the Sermon on the Mount. We, d- we talked about the road to happiness as we looked at the Beatitudes. We talked about our responsibility to this world as believers to be the salt of the earth. And what else? The light of the world, not to hide our light under a bushel, but to let men see our light so that they might not glorify us, but glorify our Father which is in heaven. Those were the similitudes. So we talked about the beatitudes. We talked about the similitudes. We also discussed the absolute reliability of Scripture. Can you rely on this book? Is this God's inspired book? Down to every what? Jot and tittle. Very good. You really did learn. This is so exciting. And we discussed uh, every topic that you can just about imagine, didn't we? As we went through the Sermon on the Mount, 
I said to the ladies yesterday, there were some days I was actually embarrassed. I don't get embarrassed very easily, but some days it was sort of embarrassing to talk about some of the things that we had to talk about. But that's what happens when you study God's word exegetically. When you go verse by verse, line by line, precept upon precept, word by word. And so we had to discuss such subjects as murder. Well, we all came that day thinking, piece of cake. I never murdered anybody. I'm going to get through this one. A-okay. And what happened? We all left here here as murderers. (laughs) Because if you even have an angry thought in your heart against somebody, you're just as guilty as a murderer. Now, there are different degrees of uh, torment in hell, but, you know, one sin is enough to send us there, isn't it? And then we talked about adultery, and we talked about divorce, And two lessons on divorce, what the Old Testament teaches and what the New Testament teaches about divorce. We talked about taking oaths and making vows and how important that is in God's eyes and how lightly sometimes we take our oaths and vows to God. We talked about retaliation, vengeance, and again, it was very difficult because we had to do a lot of soul searching, didn't we? The thing about the Sermon on the Mount was that we really had to examine ourselves. And that's good. That's always good. It's always good for us to do a self-examination and see where we are in our relationship with the Lord. See how we're doing. First of all, number one, can't get through the Beatitudes without doing a self-check to see if you really are saved. If you really do, you know, have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. And then after that, it was how is our walk with the Lord? So we did a lot of self-examination in that study. We talked about vengeance, and then we talked about love, which was refreshing to get to after murder and adultery and divorce and all that. And then we talked about hypocrisy. In religious practices, can people do good things with the wrong attitude and motive? Yes. All the religions in the world are doing, you know, basically good things, almsgiving, charitable giving, Um, fasting, prayer, but we learned how people can do that hypocritically to get the glory from uh, from men instead of from God. And then we talked how to, you know, the righteous way to do these things, religious practices, the righteous way to pray, to give alms, to fast. And then we did a very comprehensive study on the Lord's Prayer, which we have in a mini album, too. Two, two tapes, I think it was. The Lord's Prayer, which should better be called what? The Disciples' Prayer. Why is that? Because the Lord would never ask for forgiveness, would he? Because he never sinned. So it really was his pattern for prayer, a perfect pattern for our prayers. So it should be the Disciples' Prayer. Um, And then let's see, what else did you miss? Okay, you missed our lessons about laying up treasures in heaven and not spending our lives for the things of this earth. We talked about how it is important to not worship materialism. Uh, You can't, no man can serve two masters, can't serve God and mammon, which is materialism. The most important thing about our lives is to be sending our treasures on ahead, right? Laying them up where they won't ever decay. No thieves can get them. No moths can eat away at them. All right, then you also missed, um, oh, you missed our let. Now, this one you're probably thankful for. (laughs) This isn't bad news. This is good news for you. You missed our lesson on worry and uh, 
how worry and anxiety is actually what? A sin. Were, were we guilty on that one? Anybody here not guilty on that one? And then you missed our talk about, talks about criticism and judgmentalism and the golden rule, which again, you know, do unto your neighbor as you would have him do unto you. Love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself and all that. That's pretty hard, isn't it, to do? Even the golden rule we fail at. You also missed the first 11 lessons of our Life of Christ 3 book, which is now the, you know, the one we're currently on. You missed our discussion on some great miracles, such as the healing of the Roman centurion's servant, which was done at a distance. And remember how we just fell in love with that Roman centurion because of his great faith? He's the only man that Jesus ever commended for having great faith. One man he commended and one woman for having great faith. And she was the Syrophoenician woman. And what was interesting was that they were both Gentiles. You'd think those with great faith would have been the Jews, somebody from the Jewish faith. But no, both of them were Gentiles. You also missed our lesson on the the first raising from the dead, which was the widow's son of Nain. They were actually on their way to the cemetery to bury him. And we call that a raising from the dead, not a resurrection, because the poor guy had to die again, didn't he? (laughs) Uh, He was not resurrected in a glorified body, so it's not the same as resurrection. It was a raising from the dead. You missed our lesson on the misunderstood Messiah, which was a very sad lesson because Jesus was, you know, after performing all these fantastic miracles. Can you imagine turning water into wine, healing lepers, cleansing lepers, which no one had ever been able to do, raising somebody from the dead, healing people from a distance, all the miracles that he had been doing. And yet, what was the religious establishment's conclusion about him? He was doing it in the power of Beelzebub, Satan. And they committed the unpardonable sin because they, they uh, rejected the final witness of the triune God. They rejected the witness of God the Father. They rejected the witness of God the Son because he told them, Something else you missed that I forgot to mention. He told them over and over again who he was. But if you will look at John chapter 5, which is a sermon oftentimes missed and not really um, talked about. You just don't hear it. But it's the sermon on the judgment and resurrection power of Christ. And over and over again, just in that one sermon, he told clearly who he was, that he was God, God's son equal with God. And they understood that. So they rejected God the Father's witness, which was through Scripture, and through John the Baptist, who they knew was a prophet of God. And uh, God even spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased at the time of his baptism. So they rejected the, the witness of the Father. They rejected the witness of the Son himself. And when they rejected the witness of the Holy Spirit, in whose power the Lord was performing his miracles and gave the, the, said it was instead in the power of Satan, they committed the unpardonable sin. And we talked about the unpardonable sin, didn't we? Is it a sin that uh, we can commit today? 
Well, the only unpardonable sin today is to die unsaved, to take your last breath without ever having asked Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. That is the only unpardonable. It's not suicide. It's not murdering somebody. It's none of those. It's dying lost. And then it's too late, and God cannot pardon you any further. But you then also missed, um, well, we were on the misunderstood. So he's misunderstood by the, uh, the religious establishment who officially rejected him. And then he was also, this was even sadder, he was misunderstood by his own family. They, they, they said he's lost his mind. And they were embarrassed about it, and they tried to get him and take him home. They said, please, would you just keep your mouth shut? He's, he's just out of his mind. He's telling people that he's God. Come home with us, Jesus. And that had to really have been hard for him, his own brothers and sisters. And then you missed a lot of parables. You missed the parable of the divided kingdom. You missed the parable of the, uh, subduing the strong man, the parable of the empty house. And then a whole chapter of parables in which we um, discussed the mystery kingdom. Matthew chapter 13, the mystery kingdom parables. It was a very critical study on the interval kingdom that would exist not here physically on earth in the 1,000-year kingdom when Jesus will return again one day and, you know, actually rule from Jerusalem as king of kings and lord of lords for 1,000 years, that kingdom had to be postponed because the king was rejected. But in the meantime, from the time of his rejection to the time of his return, there was this mystery kingdom that no one in the Old Testament really understood and knew about. But we're living in it, aren't we? So this was an important chapter for you and I to understand because in it we were told about our responsibility in this world to do what? Sow the seed of God's word. And we were told about the four different kinds of responses to expect when we sow the seed. And sadly, only one of the seeds takes root. One out of four would take root that we talked about. Uh, in that in that uh, important mystery kingdom parables. We also talked about the fact that there would be tares mixed in with wheat. Wheat represents true Christians. Do you think our churches today have tares in them? Absolutely they do. Very likely there's a tear sitting here among us today. We don't know who it is. Sometimes even the tear himself or herself doesn't know who she is. That's why it's so important to do a self-examination. Make sure you truly truly are wheat, that you truly are born again. Did the Lord have a tear in his wheat? From, of, out of uh, 12 disciples, there was a tear. And you know what's amazing? None of the other guys knew who it was. Some of them said, is it me? They didn't, is it me? Am I the tear? And it, of course, it was Judas. So we, we talked about the fact that throughout the church age, there will be tares mixed in with the wheat. And we talked about leaven. We talked about mustard seeds. We talked about hidden treasure, pearl of great price, all of those parables in that chapter. And then you miss the Lord's first miracle of calming a terrible storm, a satanically induced storm, most likely, on the Sea of Galilee. When all the disciples, where was the Lord during the storm? He was sleeping. Uh, but the, the disciples were very, very fearful. And they were, they were um, 
they were fishermen. They'd been in many storms before, but they were, they were frightened to death. They thought surely they were going to perish in this storm. And just amazing miracle. I would have loved to, no, I'm scared of water, so I wouldn't have loved to have been, uh, maybe, you know, if I could be perched up above watching it from, (laughs) from above, I would have loved to have seen when Jesus stood up in that boat on that stormy sea with the wind howling and blowing and the rain and everything and the boat beginning to sink. And what did he say? Three words, two in, two in Greek, peace, be still. And just like a mirror, instant calm. You know, didn't have to settle down. Ripples in the, in, the, in the water, no. Not even a ripple. Instant calm. And then the disciples were even more afraid of him than they had been of the storm. And I don't blame them. They said, who is this? Who has been in the boat with us? That got their attention, didn't it? That miracle. Ooh. You missed that. And then... You missed a two-part study on Christ, the great physician. Now, none of you will forget this one. When he healed the rude, crude, you all say it with me, rude, crude, dude in the nude. <laughs> the Gadarene demoniac. That was, that was one character. Actually, there were two demoniacs, but we focused on just the one. He was a wild man. He was possessed by a legion of demons. And what was he doing? He was out there living in the tombs, running around stark naked. Nobody could chain him down. He'd break through the chains because when you're possessed by demons, you're powerful. And he was cutting his wrists and trying to hurt himself. And he was just worse than any animal you can imagine, just wild. And what happened after Jesus came to him? Again, just like the storm. Complete calm. And when, when we saw him next, he was clothed and he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. And he became an evangelist as well. And he went throughout Decapolis, Gentile territory, publishing the good news about Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Then you miss the second raising from the dead, which was when the Lord raised Jairus's 12-year-old daughter from the dead from dead being dead and in conjunction with that the healing of the woman who had an issue of blood for how many years 12 years those two miracles went together and we talked about all the similarities in them then you miss the miracle of giving sight to two blind men and healing a dumb demoniac which once again are you opened up in your bibles to anything did I tell you to? Would you open up to Matthew chapter 9? Because this is where we finished the year, last May. After he had healed the dumb demoniac, which you read about in uh, verses 32 and 33, around there somewhere, then if you will look at verse 34, we have the second time when the Pharisees rejected Jesus and said that what he did was done in the power of Satan. Look at verse 34 of Matthew um, 9. It says, but the Pharisees said he casteth out devils through the prince of devils. So that was his second rejection by the religious rulers. And then finally you miss his second rejection 
from his hometown people of Nazareth, which you don't see here in Matthew because we had to jump over to Mark. But if you look at Mark 6, verses 1 to 6, that was his second rejection in Nazareth. Well, as we saw then, the Lord's second year of his ministry quickly mushroomed into into a time of open popularity with the people. The people were beginning to really follow him everywhere he went because they, you know, he was performing miracles and just the crowds were growing and he just couldn't even get away from the crowds. So while that was going on in his second year of ministry, at the very same time, there was this growing hostility toward him coming from the religious rulers. Where we are now, where we're going to be starting today, we are somewhere between the end of the Lord's second year of public ministry and we are at the beginning somewhere of his third year of ministry. So if you have not been with us through the last three years of this Bible study, because this is all that you have been missing, this is all you have missed. However, the good news is that we have the books, And we have the cassette tapes for everything that you did miss. And at your leisure, you can read or listen and catch up to where we are. Take your time doing it and, you know, eventually get everything that you missed. Furthermore, the truth of the matter is that we still have a whole lot more to cover on the life of Christ. We still have the final year of his earthly ministry of three and a half years. We actually have a year and a half of his public ministry, and the best is yet to come. Did you know that more than, and this this is just really interesting statistics. If you're trying to follow me in the books, forget it, because I haven't even started on the lesson. (laughs) That's why I ran into trouble yesterday. Uh, But these are just some interesting statistics. More than half of each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, more than half of each of them is spent on the Lord's last year of ministry. And we still have over, therefore, five or six years of his ministry to talk about. We may be here when the rapture comes. Very possibly. The way the world is going, I wouldn't be surprised one bit. So you've still caught us right at the beginning. We're just at the hem of the garment. So that's good news for you new ladies. And by the way, keep inviting more ladies. With the life of Christ, it's never too late to come in. So keep on inviting women to this study. Did you know this? 58% of Luke's gospel, that's almost 60%, is dedicated to just the last six months of the Lord's life. 60% of Luke, just the last six months of the Lord's ministry. Almost 40% of John's gospel is dedicated to just the last week of the Lord's life, which we call the Passion Week. 40% of John's gospel just to the last week. In fact, John's gospel contains six entire chapters Who knows how many chapters are in John? 21. 21. So six of those 21 chapters, what's that roughly? Not quite a third. Are dedicated to just the last day of the Lord's life. So you see what I mean? 
You haven't missed a whole, you've missed some stuff, but we still have so much more to cover. What do you think the Holy Spirit was emphasizing in the Gospels by this, by these statistics? What does this tell us? It tells us that the Holy Spirit was emphasizing the fact that Jesus Christ was born to, to die. He was born to die. The emphasis in all four of the Gospels is on his death, his atoning death. He died for you and me because we're sinners. So the emphasis is on his death and the events that preceded that all-important event. So with that review, we come to lesson number 64. You can open up your books now. Lesson number 64, the Ordination Sermon, Part 1. And in your books, it's a three-part study. It may be a four-part study by the time we're through. <clears throat> and this, this is a time, we begin now, a very important time of, of transition in the Lord's ministry. This is also a very important time of transition for his 12 disciples as well. Because up to this time, his 12 men, his 12 disciples, had merely been observing their master and, and learning from him, watching everything he did, listening to everything he said. They didn't always understand everything he said, and he would, he would try to explain to them things, but they were learners. They were disciples. Do you know what the word disciples means in Greek? The word is matetis. It means learners. They were learners. They were disciples, but they had not to this point, they had not been participators with him in his ministry of teaching, preaching, and healing. He had been, especially after John the Baptist was thrown in prison, Jesus had basically been a one-man show. You know, he'd been doing everything on his own. Sure, he had this little group following him, but he was doing it all while his men were watching and learning. They were disciples. But now that the, the uh, religious establishment of Israel, those who were supposed to be the shepherds of God's people, now that they had openly and officially rejected Jesus as Messiah, on two occasions at least, the Lord began the active preparation for ministry of his 12 men. They would become under himself as the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. We'll see that when we get to John chapter 10. But under him, they would become the under shepherds. They would become the new shepherds of God's flock. They would become the living stone, foundational stones for his church. And it was time, therefore, remember what the end of the Lord's second year of ministry, the beginning of his third year of ministry, it was time for these men to begin to participate in ministry and in learning some shepherding skills. The harvest was plenteous, and these men were to be his first laborers in that harvest field. Now, with our look at um, Matthew 9, starting in verse 35, and this three-part study on the ordination sermon will take us through chapter 11, verse 1, we are going to be discussing two main topics. We'll be looking at the harvest. That's what we'll look at this morning. And then we will also get into a study on the helpers or the laborers. I called them helpers so we'd stay with the H's. And we'll talk about a little bit of that today. We won't get too far. This is the fourth sermon in our Life of Christ study. We also tell you the numbers. You know, this is, ha happens to be sermon number four 
in our Life of Christ study, and it is called the Ordination Sermon. This is a time when the Lord charged his men to the ministry of the apostolate. From now on, they would be called apostles. You'll find as we go through the, the, our Life of Christ study, they're also called disciples because they're continuously learning. Don't we? I mean, we learn our whole lives. They never stopped learning. So they were still disciples, but now they are also going to be called at times apostles because the word apostle in Greek is apostoloi, and it means sent ones. He is now sending them out on their first ministry visitation without him. And before he does that, before he sends them out, just like Noah, you know, I think in Noah's Ark, because he sent them out two by two, before he did that, he ordained them for the ministry of the apostolate. You know, when a pastor is, when a man is ordained into the ministry, he's given a charge to be a shepherd, and that's what the Lord did with these men. He gave them a charge. It's called the ordination sermon. He... Um, He was going to send them out in pairs in his power and in his authority to do what he had been doing. What had he been doing? Preaching, teaching, and healing. And they would try to bring into the fold the scattered, shepherdless, faint-hearted sheep. You know, the Lord knew he wasn't going to be with his men too much longer because his time was getting short. The cross was getting closer, and he knew that. He knew that all along. So it was time to begin the hands-on training of those who would carry on the work of the kingdom once Jesus had ascended back to his Father in heaven. So let's look, first of all, (coughs) at the harvest, Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. Right after it says that he healed the dumb demoniac and the Pharisees said he did it, through the power of the prince of the devils, it says in verse 35, and Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with what? With compassion. If you've been in church or been a Christian for very long, you've heard many missionaries preach on this on this passage of scripture, I am sure. He was moved with compassion on them because they fainted, which actually means they were so tired they just laid down. You picture a sheep so tired he just lays down right where he is. They were fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd then he said, then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers unto his harvest. Take this passage in its context. Now this may be something you don't hear the missionaries preach on. Because if you don't study the Lord's life chronologically, you might miss this. Chronologically, what has just happened? First of all, the Lord has been rejected for the second time by his hometown people of Nazareth. It's not here in Matthew, but it had just happened chronologically. You go over to Matthew six, uh, Mark 6, and you'll read about it. Second time, they rejected him. Do you think that broke his heart? People he grew up with his whole life, and they rejected him. What else had just happened in the verses preceding Our Matthew account, he had also just been accused for the second recorded time 
by the religious rulers of performing his works in the power of Satan. And yet, what do we read in the very next chronological verse? Matthew 9.35. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. That is remarkable. That really is amazing when you stop and think about it. And it's remarkable in two ways. First of all, it's remarkable and it serves as an example to you and I of how Jesus answered his critics. The best and most effective response to those who reject us because of the fact that we are Christian and our Christian testimony, the best way to respond to them who reject us and those who hate us or criticize us or slander us or judge us or all that we hear on the television about Christians, the best response is to merely keep on doing that which is right before God to do. Just like Jesus did here. He answered the slander of the religious establishment and the rejection of his very hometown people by doing good for people. He just kept on doing good. We should always answer our enemies the same way our Lord did here. Remember what he told us in the Sermon on the Mount? What did he say? He said, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good for them, to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So we have a wonderful example on how to respond to our critics in the Lord Jesus, who always sets the example for us. So that's remarkable um, example number one. Secondly, in this we see that Jesus had work to do. He came here with a mission. He had work to do, and no matter what others thought, or how they tried to stop him, he would continue doing that work until when? Until that work was finished. Until it was complete. If you know that you are doing a work for the Lord, a work that he has called you to do in this life, then that's all that's important. If you know that's what he's called you to do, then don't listen to the voices of the critics even if they come from members of your own household. Don't listen to unbelievers, in particular, who might tell you you shouldn't be wasting your life doing that. My own father told me that. He said, you're wasting your life, Catherine, on on this Bible, on this book. Don't listen to the voice of even some of those closest to you if, if if you know it's not of God. And, and don't even listen to voices of those who may be believers who might try to get you off course. Stick to it like Jesus did. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I'm not wasting my life. My father was wrong. It's so sad, but he was wrong. He's the one who had wasted his life. It says, in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I want you to look at something amazing. Go back to Mark 4. I mean, not Mark. I'm sorry. Matthew 4. Just a few books over. Chapters over. Matthew 4, verse 23. Matthew 4, 23. This was at the very beginning of the Lord's ministry. He had just finished his temptation in the wilderness. 
defeating Satan. And it tells us in verse 23 that he went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Now go back to what we just read in Matthew 9.35. And if you look at it, it's almost word for word the same. What does that tell you? It tells us that, you know what's important in the Christian life? Consistency, faithfulness, steadfastness. Moreover, it is required of stewards that a man be found what? Faithful. Keep on keeping on. He just, no matter what everybody else was saying, he kept on doing that which he had been called to do. Preaching the gospel, teaching the the word of God, and healing, doing good for people. You know, it's so important. People are looking at you. Whether you realize it or not, people are looking at you. And what are they looking for? Steadfastness, faithfulness. You know what I see as I look a lot of times at the church today? When I say the church, I mean in, you know, Christendom in general. I see a lot of people hopping around, a lot of people starting a good work, and then a couple years later giving it up. Very few. That's why I say you all the cream of the crop. Some of you have been with us the whole 20 years. People are looking for those who are steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the Lord. That is so important in the Christian life, to keep on keeping on. Those of you who have started with us, please, Satan will do everything he can to get you not to come here on Tuesday morning to study his word. But keep on being faithful. Fight him every, with everything you have to be here because it's so important to be in his word and to be faithful. And that, you know, we will be here, Lord willing, as long as the Lord allows us to be. We, I think, after 20 years, we've proven that we're going to be steadfast and faithful. So you can count on us that next Tuesday we will be here, unless a hurricane comes or something unforeseen. So the Lord went on doing that which he had done from the very beginning. He performed miracles and da-da-da-da-da in order to... You know, why he performed miracles, don't you? To authenticate his message, which was the more important. The message. The message of the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom message was that the kingdom of God on earth was at hand. Why? Because the king himself was in their midst. And everywhere he went, multitudes of people followed him, mostly of curiosity. Most of the people following him, sad to say, were curiosity seekers or thrill seekers. They were following him for the wrong reason. They were following him, a lot of them, for what they could get out of him. He could heal them or heal their loved ones. But he just kept on doing good anyway. And then in verse 36, we find a beautiful insight into the Lord's heart of compassion, which was why he came from the glories of heaven to enter into this sin-cursed world in the first place. He did not have to come down here, did he? He didn't have to come down here and suffer through all this rejection and misery, but he did it because his heart is one of compassion for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He had compassion on lost mankind. The multitudes might have seen him as little more than an object of curiosity, but they were objects of compassion to him. As he looked on the multitudes, he saw them as what? scattered sheep having no shepherd no shepherds no good shepherds no true shepherds no caring shepherds 
Uh, no sacrificial shepherds. He saw them in their helpless and hopeless distress. He saw them faint-hearted. Remember, he said that was tired and laying down. They, they, were, they were just weary. They were weary of life. Life can be very cruel, can't it? It can be cruel. If this was all there was, I might have thrown up my hands a long time ago and said, I can't handle this. This is mean. This is ugly. This, I don't like this. Living in a world run by Satan is no picnic. So they were tired of life. They were faint-hearted of life. They were very faint-hearted of their religion. They were weary of religion because their religion offered them nothing but more rules and regulations and just added to their heavy yoke. And then they were also weary of sin. Their sin had them. Imagine going through the Sermon on the Mount and not being saved. It would have you pretty bent over with guilt. So they were faint-hearted. Instead of being guided and protected by their religious leaders, those false shepherds, those lazy shepherds, those selfish shepherds, those calloused men were actually preventing the sheep from following the one true good shepherd. They were literally driving, and you don't drive sheep, do you? You, A shepherd leads the sheep. But their false shepherds were driving their flock right into Satan's den of wolves. Not, they weren't leading them into the green pastures and the quiet still waters of salvation in Christ, the good shepherd. They, they were feeding their people the junk food of, of ritualism and traditionalism and legalism and man-made sabbatic laws. They were not feeding the sheep with that soul-satisfying nutritional manna from heaven, which is God's word. If you and I are to model our lives and our ministries, and let me tell you, every single one of us in this room has a ministry. You have a ministry to those in your family. You have a ministry to your neighbors. You maybe have a a ministry of Sunday school or whatever you might do in your church. You have a ministry to even the ladies in your group here at Bible study. We're all involved in ministry in one way or another. If we're to model our lives and our ministries after Christ, we must always start with, you know what? Feeding the sheep. Remember what he said, what the Lord said to Peter after Peter had denied him and then the Lord came back in his uh, resurrection glory and spoke to Peter and he said, do you, re- do you love me, Peter? And Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. But three times he said, if you love me, what will you do? You will feed my lambs. Do you have young lambs in the home? Do you have lambs that are grandchildren? Little ones? You know what you're to be doing them with them? Feeding them the word of God. And it's never too early to start feeding them. Don't let them feed on the junk food of this world. Don't put them in front of videos and, and um, Internet junk and let them listen to all this kind of awful music. Feed your lambs God's word. And you can't feed them God's word if you yourself aren't being nutritioned in God's manna, can you? That's why it's so important to be here. You have to be fed so that you can, in turn, have something to feed them. And uh, he said, not only feed my lambs, but he said, feed my sheep. The reason the people of the Lord's day were faint-hearted was because they were malnourished. They were biblically illiterate. 
You know what the Lord says in Hosea 4, 6? He says, my people are destroyed. Why? For a lack of knowledge. You know what it's a lack of knowledge of? Not not modern technology. Man has a lot of knowledge in that area. Not science and not all the medical field and going into outer space. Got lots of knowledge on in that area, those areas. What man is uh, being destroyed for not having is a lack of biblical knowledge. And the, and the Lord said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Do you know we live in a biblically lean world? Do you know most people don't hardly know how to find books in the Bible? And they've been going to church all their lives? Now, if you're here and you don't know where a book in the Bible is, that's fine if you're, you know, if you're just beginning. Because I told the ladies yesterday, I was 32 years old, and all I knew about the Bible was that Noah built an ark. And I knew there was some man named Jesus who died on the cross, but I didn't know much more than that. So it's never too late to start. But our churches are full of illiterate, biblically illiterate people. And that's why we're being destroyed. And, the, and we have less excuse than these people did back. I mean, yeah, we have less excuse than they did because they didn't have their own personal copy of God's word like we do. And we have access. You can go right down here to the carpenter shop and buy all the Bibles you want and all the Bible commentaries that you want. We have no excuse for being biblically illiterate. But they did not have their own copy of God's word, which back then only consisted of the Old Testament. We have Old and New Testament. Furthermore, they weren't being taught the word. That's why they were so faint-hearted. Um, their teachers were not teaching it to them. Instead, they were spending all their time telling them about sabbatic rules and, and uh, ceremonialism and ritualism. What they needed to know, they were not being taught. They needed to know who God is and uh, what God is like. If they had really known what God was like, you know what? They would have recognized God in his son. And they weren't hearing how far short of God's righteousness they came and how corrupted his image within them was. And they weren't learning about how badly they needed a savior from sin. They were only uh, thinking that they needed a savior from Rome. They needed someone who was going to come and lead a revolution against Rome. Much more badly than any of their need for physical healing from diseases and handicaps, etc., was their need for spiritual healing, their need for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. So Jesus saw the deepness of man's need and the plight of his spiritual poverty and blindness, and he felt what? Compassion for, for them, for mankind, for Israel, and, of course, for the whole world. And, you know, I thought about that. That compassion of God... And Jesus Christ is unique to Christianity. How would you like to have been raised in Hinduism? Talk about a religious system that is Hinduism. There's a lot of religions that are very cruel. But Hinduism is pretty cruel. I am so thankful that my God is who he is and that he's not a type of the God, a God, in which the Hindus believe. Of course, they have millions of God, gods. I think 70 million gods and goddesses. Their religious system is so cruel with its terrible caste system where, where people are prohibited from even touching other people in another caste. There's a whole caste which is called the untouchables. 
They're not even allowed to be touched. That's why, you know, Mother Teresa got all her praise because she would actually go in and touch the untouchables. The Hindus are taught not to be concerned about healing the sick or helping the poor or the dying. That's why if you go to India, you'll see people dying and poor and beggarly and in all kinds of awful conditions laying on the streets and nobody does anything about it because to them, to do so is to interfere with the process of karma and to interfere with the process of reincarnation. The Hindu priests see absolutely no responsibility on their part to take care of any of the distressed or the afflicted. Kind and compassionate, isn't it? Not at all. Who do you think invented this little system of religion? Same one who started all of the other, all the false religions, Satan. And think about the, um, what they actually believe is that a person who's suffering is being punished for their previous lifetime. So leave them alone. They're, they're going through their punishment. They rightly deserve what they've got. And the Buddhists, think about the Buddhists, who only perform acts of benevolence, only the, they only perform works of kindness and goodness when they think that it will give them an extra merit with Buddha. It's like, you know, oh, I'll do something good because Buddha will give me a golden star. Their motive for any, um, any kindness is their own self-reward. As a matter of fact, if we did some research, we'd find that all the gods of paganism were basically apathetic, totally indifferent toward the, the plight of man that were hopeless and helpless. They were indifferent. You know, the Greek gods of my own ancestry, you think they cared about man? No, they were so involved in their own immorality and having their own good time. They were totally indifferent to the welfare of man. And of course, they're all false gods. They're not really gods. They're gods of man's imagination. Gods who he creates after his own image instead of being, you know, us created in God's image. Um, I think I think about, of course, today, the, uh, another religion, the religion of Islam. Does it care? Do, does the God of Allah really care about his people? No. He would send young men and women and even innocent babies to their death for him. He's a false god. He's an invention of Satan. Christianity is unique. Um, you know, even the religious rulers of, of uh, Christ's day, even the, um, the scribes and the Pharisees had a distorted picture of the true God when it came to compassion. They really saw Jehovah God as more of a God of vengeance. You know, if you did one bad thing on the Sabbath, you might be struck dead. So don't pluck out a white hair. That would be working. That would be reaping. You know, all, all their crazy little rules. They saw him as a God of vengeance, a God of anger, a God of indifference, rather than a God of love and concern for man. But Jesus came into the world to reveal to the world that the one and only true God is a love, a God of love. God is love. And that he is a God of concern and patience and mercy and grace. And great compassion. So in response to the multitude's helpless condition, Jesus turned to his disciples and he gave to them the motive for their ministry. And he changed the metaphor from shepherding to harvesting. And he said to them, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. This is one of the greatest missionary passages of all the New Testament. And in it, the, the Lord Jesus pictures Israel 
and really all of the world as a great spiritual harvest in desperate need of what? Laborers. Desperate. The world is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What are we up to? Seven billion people? The harvest is plenteous. The laborers are so very few. So he told his men to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Who is that? Who's the Lord of the harvest? God. God is the, that's actually a reference to God in his uh, judgment role. The harvest is the time of, really going to be that time of judgment. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, or God, that laborers would be sent. He knew that those who pray to God for workers, uh uh-oh, beware of this prayer, those who pray for God for laborers in the harvest field place themselves in the position of becoming some of those very laborers. You know, it's not right to pray to God for someone to go and witness to the lost without putting ourselves at his disposal to also be willing to witness to the loss. We cannot pray righteously for laborers in the harvest field without willingly saying ourselves, here am I, Lord, send me. And this is exactly what happened with the Lord's 12. He called them to pray. See, that's a command. That's a command for you and I, too. We're always to be praying for more laborers. He commanded them to pray for helpers in the harvest, and then immediately, in the next verses, he called them to be those very helpers. So beware what you pray for, right? 